Hello, and welcome to White House Chronicle. My guest today, my very special guest, is Victoria Yeager, the widow of the greatest pilot we have produced in America. Or I think I can say that without much fear of contradiction, certainly one of the greatest pilots who's ever climbed into a cockpit, any cockpit of any aircraft. He was an ace during World War II, and of course, he broke the sound barrier. He was a test pilot of extraordinary skill and courage. And it is an honor to have Victoria on to talk about Chuck, but mostly because she's got a new book, which is a collection of his wit and wisdom. And he was, I've been reading them and they're very funny. I was chortling away and some of them are very wise. And we're going to go through some of these things. Uh, Victoria, welcome to the broadcast. What is the book called? Thank you, Llewellyn. The book is called 101 Chuck Yeagerisms, Wit and Wisdom from America's Hero. Was Chuck aware of how people thought of him? How did he handle being this revered figure, America's greatest pilot, maybe the greatest pilot in the whole world? Well, Llewellyn, his father said, son, never forget where you came from. And he never did. So when people would say to him things like, are you the Chuck Yeager? He'd say, there's no the in my name. Or they'd, <laughs> <laughs> or they'd ask him, uh, are you who I think you are? And he'd say, how do I know who you think I am? He just didn't quite get that he was a hero. In fact, people would be, they'd forget their manners. They were so in awe. And I'd have to explain, oh, it's just because you're a great man. And he wouldn't understand that. Uh, but you understood it. Did it affect I your, your relationship to him or did you get over that and then you were just like any other married couple? <laughs> well, we started out that I didn't know who he was when I first met him. And I have been fortunate enough to be around a lot of uh, famous or rich people my whole life. So no, before I would consent to marry him in my own mind, I actually did the, if he lived in a box test. So if he lived in a paper box, would I still marry this man? And his character was such, so outstanding, great sense of humor, uh, an intellectual curiosity that never quit, which kept him young. I, I absolutely would marry this man if I had to earn the living and he lived in a paper box. That was... Now, you met him while you were hiking in the High Sierra and you didn't know who he was and you fell into conversation. Three years later, you got married, and, and you yourself, are. he was a hunter and a hiker and a fisherman, and so are you. Indeed, you told us that when this broadcast is over, you're going to go out and shoot an elk. <laughs> I, I'm going to get on the phone and tell the elk you're coming and mind out. <laughs> That's not fair. Actually, Llewellyn, I grew up in a city. I was a city kid, so guns meant gangs shooting gangs to me. I was never anti-hunting. Actually, it's not hunting. He would tell you it's hunting. But in any case, I learned to hunt with him. I learned to shoot a gun with him. I learned to fly. I learned to fish with him. So instead of going to plays in London or, or New York, I was out in the wilderness with him. Very interesting. Uh, let's just quickly wrap up. You were born in Pennsylvania. You took drama in university and you were an actress, and then you studied business in university, and <clears throat> later on, you married Chuck. Whereabouts in Pennsylvania did you grow up? 
Philadelphia. And he and Chuck grew up in Hamlin, West Virginia, which is a a hollow, what the West right. Virginians call a hollow. And I know West Virginia fairly well. I used to drive in there. And indeed, when I was flying small aeroplanes, not to confuse my meager talents with anybody we're discussing today, but I used to take it over to be serviced and fly over those beautiful hills and look down into the hollows where people really have a very hard scrabble life. It may be pretty, but it's not an easy life. And he came from that. He didn't go to university. He went into the army. He got drafted to the army air corps, learned to fly an airplane. And next thing he was shooting down the enemy in World War II. How many, how many aircraft did he, did he shoot down? Well, he shot down 14 or 15, but he only got credit for 11 and a half. Um, I don't know how you shoot a half an aeroplane down. You might enlighten <laughs> us. Well, another another fellow in his squadron also shot at that airplane, so they shared the credit. I, I'm a great believer in, in quotes and aphorisms. Uh, give me a couple of your favorites from Chuck. Well, you, you were talking about his childhood, and one of the ones from his childhood was, I was born so far up a holler, they had to pipe daylight in. <laughs> if you've been in those hollers, it's pretty dark up there. And then it also, one of my favorites, as you know, he was shot down during World War II. And the Germans, I think there was only one German tower in all of southern France, and it was, had a bird's eye view of his plane coming down and his parachute coming down. So they were on his heels as soon as he got to the ground. But he said, there ain't a German in the world that can catch a West Virginian in the woods. <laughs> so his childhood prepared him for his later life. Another one that I like is the first time I saw a jet, I shot it down. <laughs> now, when he saw the jet, it, it took off because he was in a propeller plane. It was a German and the Germans had the first jets right at the end of the Second World War. Uh, what did he think of his own, of his own bravery, foolhardiness? Uh, whatever he thought of it as, because he was obviously an incredibly courageous man who, uh, when he broke the sound barrier, he didn't, nobody knew what would happen. They thought the airplane would disintegrate, the person would disintegrate, nobody knew. Well, he wasn't a hotshot. I mean, the right stuff says, uh, it has him coming up in a horse and then looking at the X-1, jumping in and breaking the sound barrier. That's not how it happened. It was the ninth powered flight. On the seventh powered flight, they didn't think they could do it because he lost horizontal uh, stabilizer effectiveness. Now for non-pilots, that's the rear tail. Uh, and so he, he lost the effectiveness, so he couldn't do pitch. So he came down and he's told Ridley, we're done for, we can't get through the sound barrier. I lost control. And Ridley sort of looked at his slide rule, looked at the, the cockpit and he said, you have this manual trim that can trim the horizontal stabilizer, the flat, the tail. Try that. So on the eighth powered flight, he turned and that, that gives you a simulation of what it's going to be like when you're flying straight and level because you're pulling more G's when you're turning. G's is gravity. And so he, while he's bouncing around, he's doing this trim and he's able to do it. So then he was able to do it on the ninth powered flight and break the sound barrier but control that fly, that tail, and they called it the flying tail. So he wasn't as, he wasn't as uh, br brave or crazy or whatever, he was methodical. 
he wanted to live. He didn't want to be a hero and croak. And, uh, and the right stuff, the book was written by Tom Wolfe, who oddly I knew in the Herald Tribune in New York very briefly, long before he became an author, but he was already on the way. Uh, the book is fairly accurate, I think, but the movie was a little condensed, if you will. <laughs> yes, it was. And actually, Chuck wrote the part about the NF-104 because he was explaining it to Tom Wolfe, and Tom Wolfe wasn't quite getting it. He wasn't a pilot. So Chuck actually wrote that bit in the right stuff about the NF-104 incident. And uh, you, so you, you had the advantage when you were learning to fly, uh, being taught by this incredible pilot, the, the pilot's pilot. He's a great teacher. He's very calm. And if he doesn't need to tell you right then, he'll tell you an hour later when you're calm again. <laughs> But, but flying with him, we had a whole bunch of things happen, like the, the, the wind picked up our plane and we were heading towards the trees. And I thought, oh, I wonder if this is going to hurt. And he cobs it. We go faster towards the trees. I thought, OK, this is going to hurt a little bit more. But as you know, he was getting control of the airplane, brought it back and landed it fine. Now, that's counterintuitive to suddenly go faster towards the obstacle. But now it's ingrained in me. That's what I need to do to get control of the airplane. You mentioned Ridley, but you didn't explain who Ridley was a bit earlier. Ridley was the aeronautical engineer for the X-1. And when he spoke, everyone listened, everyone. Thomas von, Car uh, von Karman, who was one of the top engineers in the world, and MIT, people from MIT, they listened to Ridley. He was a smart guy, he's from Oklahoma, but he could simplify things for Chuck Yeager. So he could explain what needed to be done if he, if he needed to do that. He was a great pilot. What, one of the funny stories is after Chuck broke the sound barrier, Ridley wanted to fly the airplane. So he's flying the airplane and he says, Chuck, Chuck, there's a fire warning light in here. And Chuck said, ah, oh, Ridley, hell, there ain't nothing in there that can burn. And Ridley said, the hell there ain't. I'm in here. <laughs> <laughs> I, like Chuck. I like the thing that Chuck said about if you walk away from a landing, it's a good landing. If you can fly the airplane the next day, it was a brilliant landing. Right, um, exactly. What was he like intellectually? Did he puzzle about great things? He didn't seem to have a great preference for talking about politics. One of his Boris Serbi uh, remarks was <laughs> that he didn't want to talk politics. Right. Don't, don't talk about politics. You're giving me indigestion. That's what his... Well, he grew up with people bribing, buying votes. And he grew up with, uh, there was, when he was the commander of a base, he got a bill for $20,000. This was in the 50s when $20,000 was a lot of money. And he, he wondered what it was for. And he sent it and the chain of command said, oh, be quiet, be quiet. Well, it was a congressman's bill for all his uh, fancy food and champagne and drinks. And he was very powerful and could nix the Air Force budget or not. So they just let it go. He was charging the Air Force for his partying. And so Chuck saw a lot of politics and there were things he could do something about and things he couldn't. And there are a lot, he was one of the smartest men in the world because when he couldn't do something about it, he'd forget about it. And he'd just do what he could about what he could. I have said, because I've observed this, that pilots tend never to say that an airplane is bad. If it's a hot air balloon, they say it's a great, flies beautifully. If, if it's a, if it's going, if it's a going around the moon, they say it's a great, 
is a great aircraft. I was out at Baron Hilton's uh, um, before he died at his ranch where he has this annual flying, which you and Chuck were at, but not at the same time I was. And I observed there were seven astronauts there and they wouldn't, they were flying everything, Stearmans, all sorts of old aircraft, new aircraft, hot air balloons, and a lot of soaring, a lot of gliders. Um, but you couldn't get them ever to say any aircraft wasn't any good. They wouldn't say it's a killer or it's a widow maker or any of these things that civilians would say. Did Chuck have a preference for airplane, any particular airplane he loved? Well, honestly, if you asked him that question, he'd say the one that kills the best, but the least risk to me. But honestly, the, and then he would also say, depends on the mission, which airplane he liked the best. But he preferred the X-1, of course, that was his baby. And he didn't let anybody else do any maintenance on it. He was the only one that touched that airplane. It was his derriere on the line. He loved the P-51, kept him safe. And he shot down some airplanes with that. And before he died, he said he would take an F-15E if he was going to fight a war today. He, he also liked the F-86 in its day, the F-86H. He also liked uh, the F-4, the F-20. Did he read a lot? Was he, a, was he contemplative? He did not read a lot. He, he actually would skim real quickly if he did at all. But... And he would read American Rifleman to find out how to load his gun better or something along, or load the bullets better. But no, he was really, his contemplation would be out in the middle of nowhere. He would just be watching the world and be at one with nature in a sense. I'm getting a picture of a man. I always thought, and you told me he was not a huge man, but because of certain photographs, one in particular where he's kneeling in front of an aircraft, he looks like a giant. He looks six foot four but he wasn't was he and test pilots generally shouldn't be too large they can't get in the cockpits well i'll tell you he used to tell me when i caught a fish to hold it far out in front of me because then it would look much bigger <laughs> so he was far out in front of the airplane but he was larger than life a character larger than life so it didn't really so you wouldn't know that he was a smaller man but he had to be a smaller man to be a fighter pilot in world war ii and also to fit into the X-1. If you look at the picture of him in the cockpit of the X-1, his knees are higher than his heart to, to prevent the Gs from making him black out. And uh, what was he, what was he, his feeling about his own education? He did not go to college. And presumably when he joined the army as a, an enlisted man, he had no expectation of fame and fortune and great success. That's correct. But his, his character, he would have been successful at whatever he did. But he did go to the Air Command and Staff College and Officers School. I forget what you actually call that, the Air War College at Maxwell Air Force Base. And now they give out a master's for that. So he was really a self-educated man, just like his father's. His father had an eighth grade education, but all of the geological studies in the, at the state uh, archives are done by his father. And somebody wrote and said, did he have a PhD? Because they were much better than any formally educated person he had seen. So I have been, I have been to Hamlin, but not in many, many years. Um, what is Hamlin like now? How has it changed because of his incredibly famous son? It hasn't changed a whole lot. It's still a small town. Everybody knows everybody. It's, um, they do have that. three... 
Chuck said they didn't have pigeons there until they put up a statue of him. That's right. <laughs> He's always honored when they do things like that. He doesn't expect it. And his fame was going in and out of, he was going in and out of fame. So he was used to it when he had it, used to it when he didn't have it. But he kept living his life. He just kept, you know, flying, fishing, hunting. When he didn't have it, this is sometimes very rough on famous people. I've seen it among the theater people and television people. When it's taken away, it's a great deprivation, but it wasn't a chop. No, in fact, it was a relief for Glennis, frankly. They got less mail and it was, it was much easier because he was always respected by the Air Force and that was his home in a sense. So he didn't really need the fame. And with fame comes, I, I was thinking about writing a book. So you think you want to be famous. This is what you have to put up with. Because you know, there's, there's some downside to that as well. Did he have a great quote about fame? Not really. He didn't quite grasp it. It just was what it was. Give me another one of your favorites of his. Find out what you like to do and make your lifestyle fit your, in, your, lifestyle fit your income and not the other way around. A lot of people chase dollars and they don't have time to enjoy it and they're not enjoying the chase. Whereas if you're doing what you love to do, then it doesn't matter, the money just comes. Uh, hunting and fishing and flying fighters are all actually quite lonely activities. Uh, you do them by yourself. Uh, was, there a, was there a streak in him of, of of being a loner? Yes. In fact, when he was growing up, they called him Aristotle because he was the thinker. He was always looking out the window thinking while he was in school. And he was often going out in the woods by himself. Before school, he carried a gun and he shot squirrel. Then he'd bring him home to mom to skin and cook for dinner. And then he'd show up at school with his gun, unlike today. And yes, he was very much a loner. But he still was great with people. I mean, when we hunt, it was always with a guide. And a lot of times he would hunt with a disabled vet or he'd hunt with somebody who won an, uh, a raffle, giving money to a charity. So he wasn't always alone hunting. Okay, and uh, was there any, how did you organize your activities? I mean, did you sort of have calendars and say, this is where we're going to hunt in February and <clears throat> we're going to fish in July and uh, we're going to climb the Himalayas in August. <laughs> well, we had some set dates. We had uh, fishing with Baron in Mexico in February or March. We had fishing with Baron twice in the summer. And then we would, I would organize two or three more fishing trips to Alaska with friends. Uh, and some of our friends were the lodge owners. So that made it nice. And then hunting was always in September for dove, October for quail, uh, November for elk, generally speaking, because the snow would drive them down. And then in between that, we would do other things. People would invite us someplace for some charity or uh, we did the uh, um, Down syndrome fundraisers uh, that were quail hunts. We did the West Virginia governor's one shot doe hunt, which I'm doing the end of October. And that, that would feed the hungry and go to the, all the meat would go to the food bank and feed the hungry in West Virginia. So we do a lot of those things. We went to France where he was shot down about seven or eight times. And we met some of the Maquis that took care of him when he was 
shot down and then some of their kids. So we, you know, just filled in. We were both travelers and both adventurers. How often was he shot down? Once, just once. Just, That's just enough. Once. I, yeah. I would think it's enough. I, the way you said it, I thought it was a frequent occurrence and I hadn't heard of it uh, somehow. <laughs> when you were flying, yeah, when he was teaching you to fly, you told me, and I think this is rather fascinating, at least for anybody who flies, that he taught you to fly formation before he taught you to land. Yes, indeed. In fact, the first time he taught me we were flying formation, I thought the other guy was going up and down a lot, not flying straight <laughs> level. Well, it was, as you know, it was me going up and down a lot. And he said, keep the edge of the wing uh, on the tail, on the, on the spinner. So I did. And then he said, I told you to keep the wing on the, on the spinner as, as, a, as a reference point. I said, I am. He said, yeah, but you're five miles out. <laughs> so he put me in close again. <laughs> and we started again. I finally got the, the hang of it. So it was, it was fun. Long, it was great fun. How late in his life did he keep flying? <clears throat> he was 89, almost 90, when he quit flying F-15s and, and military aircraft. And frankly, he's he stopped flying the P-51 before that because he said, these are 75-year-old aircraft and I just don't want to jump out of another aircraft. So he probably quit that when he was, oh, in his 80s. And then he probably, I asked him not to fly alone when he hit about 90, 92. I said, could you please just have somebody else? I know you'll be fine, but, and so he did that. And I guess he kind of quit flying just a few months before he passed away. Wow. So he began, how old was he when he first entered an aeroplane? He was 19, and you know what happened when he first entered. So he was a maintenance officer, and he, and he saw that the, and they, you had to have two years of college and be 20 to apply for pilot training in the Army Air Corps. Well, then they weren't getting enough applicants, so they lowered it to 18 in the high school. So he applied because he saw the pilots were, had clean fingernails, pretty girls on their arms and he thought, yeah, that, that's for me. So he had applied and his pilot for the airplane he was maintaining said, well, you've never been in an airplane. Let me, let me take you flying. So he checks, all right. They go up and he gets sick all over his aircraft. <laughs> he had to clean it up, it was his aircraft. And he thought, man, Jaeger, you made a big mistake going to pilot training. I've heard that uh, other pilots were in awe of his wingmen because they were never sure what maneuver he would enter into. And sometimes the wingman was not expecting it and had to keep up. Right, that's true. But he, when we would fly, he would let me fly the wing, but lots of times he wanted me to lead so he, because it's harder. Well, I do straight and level really well. Apparently that's the hardest thing to do. I don't know why. But coming in close and staying on someone's wing is I think the hardest. And Depend, you know, whatever they're doing, you're supposed to be right there. And he would teach us how to do it and how not to even have to use the throttle to stay that close. Give me fun. another quote. Some of his quotes are quite Churchillian about, about effort and reward. Do you have one that comes to mind, Victoria? Uh, not quite on that one, I'm sorry, but the one that, that comes to mind immediately when you say, give me one of his, is uh, uh, the, the second one that comes, I'm going to have to open the book and do an open book uh, oh, go test ahead, here. Go ahead. Go <laughs> ahead. 
because I haven't memorized the whole thing. You're allowed. Uh, okay, thank you. Well, you always said uh, everyone that enjoyed their job was good at it. So that was one of his uh, quotes. And he also went on and on. There are a couple of quotes about NASA. He also, people who are parachutists, he'd say, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? And he'd say, takeoffs are, uh, takeoffs are optional, landings are mandatory. And so he landed without his aircraft three times. One time when he, uh, his engine froze up and that was before he went over to combat and he parachuted out and he was knocked out and, a, and broke his back and they said he would never walk again. And he said, oh, I don't think so. I'm not going back to Hamlin. There ain't nothing for me there. So he, so he worked his way and he got back on combat pretty quickly and, was, and went with his squadron over to England. So that was, that was great. And then the, he, the second he one. Have, he must have had a lot of broken bones, a lot of um, bits I, that might have I, hurt during the cold weather. Yes. Well, he, he never complained. He had a pain threshold that was huge. I think he broke almost every bone in his back and his ribs. Uh, the second one was when he was shot down, and so he landed without his plane. And the third one was the NF-104 incident uh, that he, he, uh, he, was, he came, he went straight up. He was trying to do an altitude record and also give that sense of weightlessness for the astronauts who so is testing it. But he, the thrusters failed, so he couldn't come back in nose first. He came back tail first and then ended up in a flat spin. And they kept saying, punch out, punch out. He kept trying to fix it, couldn't fix it. Waited till he was below 6,000 feet because there's a higher percentage of surviving. He punched out, but he was the plane was going down at 100 miles an hour. He punched it out at 100 miles an hour, so he was suspended. And the rocket seat came, was stuck in the parachute shroud lines, came down, hit his face mask, lit it on fire, so his face was burning. He had to lift up his face mask and uh, was gulping in air. And that stopped the flow of air, oxygen stopped the fire. And so he and eventually survived that. But it was knowing his egress systems better than the people who manufactured it that saved his life. He knew he had to get that face mask up. And when he landed, we have pictures that there was just a thread left in his shroud lines. They'd burned so much. So, and then he, they didn't think he recovered a flight status, but within a month he did. And he remembered in detail, everything that happened. You, most people go into shock and don't remember anything. He remembered every detail. So that's one of his lessons uh, that you talk about risk and reward and, and know your egress systems. And also think, the other one is, think what can go wrong, how can I prevent it before it happens? And that happened in the X-1. So he, he very smart man. It's been wonderful to visit with you, wonderful to learn about your remarkable husband, that's our show for today, and be careful if you jump out of the airplane that you get well clear. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We 